Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, today we are talking Blister Labs once again, and joining me today is Greg Vanderbeek, who is one of the very key people in this whole Blister Labs thing. And in this conversation, Greg and I discuss his background, both his outdoor background and his engineering background. And we then go on to talk about Blister Labs and the stuff that we're working on right now, in particular on the mountain bike side of things. So Greg sets up and discusses what our approach has looked like when it has come to bikes. And we then go into specifically what it is that we have been working on on the mountain bike side of things and where we hope to take that. And so that is what we have on tap for you in this conversation. Now, just before we get started, I should say that this morning, Friday, July 8th, we have just opened up registration for our next Blister Summit which will take place in Mount Crested Butte this coming February 2023. We already have a number of brands that have committed to being here at this next summit, and we are certain that a number of other brands will be officially committing soon. And so we would encourage you, go ahead and sign up for this thing, because we do expect that we will run out of spots this year for the summit. So if you really want to be there, I would sign up now. We will include a link to the Blister Summit registration page in the show notes of this episode. We are psyched for this third Blister Summit. We are going to be doing some things a bit different this year, and we actually know it is going to be bigger than ever, and I am very confident that it is going to be better than ever, too. And that's saying something, because last year's was fantastic. So anyway, Blister Summit, register for it now to guarantee that you'll have a spot, and we can't wait to have you all here in Mount Crested Butte. And with that, let's talk about Blister Labs with... Greg Vanderbeek. Here we go. All right. Well, I am here with Greg Vanderbeek um, in Blister HQ. Greg just got back into town last night. And thanks to your lovely children, apparently you barely slept at all. Standard thing in the household. (laughs) Well, all the more reason that I'm uh, happy that you could come in today. I'm really happy that you are armed with coffee. That seems really, really important here. But we get to talk about some Blister Lab stuff. And um, Greg is one of the kind of foundational people when we were first bringing this Blister Labs thing into being. People can listen to the Blister Summit panel session that we held this Mm -hmm. past February at the Blister Summit. You made a cameo uh, on that panel session. Did. But now we get to kind of dive deeper into some of your background and talk a bit about some of the things that you are currently working on. So I think that's our work for this little Yeah, sounds like a good outline. Yeah. So maybe we start with this. Do you have like an official title? 
uh professionally or just yeah. in friend circles <laughs> i don't think we could publish what in the friends circle people call you that's fair. maybe we keep it at to the professional level yeah uh i guess i would be a associate professor associate professor you don't even know you literally i might don't be know. an assistant professor I, I guess i'm not huge on titles i teach i get the you know the the fun job of doing a lot of the hands-on projects. Yeah. So I get to run a lot of the welding and machining, uh, machine design is one of my favorite classes. We're designing an adaptive hand pedal bike that uh, we're trying to donate to the adaptive sports center here in Creston Butte. So a lot of the you know, project based classes I get to be a part of. So I'll just say a teacher teacher. Yeah. Okay. I like it. I think we can also say as the, finishing touches were being put on the brand new engineering building down at Western, you were heavily involved, maybe the most involved in terms of saying like, actually, we want to tweak this element or we want to, you know, get this space put in. Yeah. Is that right? Were you like the person doing that? Well, I think I, I was the main thorn in <laughs> the uh, architect's side. Yeah. So, Beautiful building. Yeah. Classroom space is beautiful. All of the uh, AV systems are gorgeous. But what the space was really lacking for what I like to do is uh, the equipment. So a lot of the machines, manuals, CNC machines, fabrication, prototyping, electronics. So to bring our student projects together, because that's really where we excel. Like we do, we start students doing hands-on projects their freshman year, and they have one every semester until graduation. And so they were lacking a lot of that. So the space was there. We might've had to knock down some walls and remove some things, but uh, we brought the equipment in and now we have what I would consider a world-class facility. I've taught at two other Colorado universities. And I would say this is by far and large the, the nicest facility I've had the opportunity to be a part of. Yeah, it's an incredible building. And that was a pretty fun period when I would like come down (laughs) <laughs> to the engineering building and we would kind of talk and you're like, well, I, I want to do this and we're getting really close, but then I also want to knock this out and go put this in. And <laughs> so, but it, I, I think it's cool that, you know, for the most part, it sounds like you mostly got yeah. your way. And it's like, man, that is great when we're, well, building an engineering facility that the actual engineers get to come in and say, I want this capability and that stuff got done. Yeah. I mean, we have an excellent curriculum uh, for you know CU, ABET accredited mechanical engineering degree. In order to meet all of those requirements, we need to be teaching students what they're going to see in the real world. Yeah. So we want to have state of the art, every opportunity we can get. Can you talk a bit more about the other academic institutions you have taught at or went to yourself for this whole engineering? Yeah, there's overlap there too. Yeah. So I started out at CU Boulder. Um, I took a one-year position. I had a company before that and wanted to get into teaching and took a one-year position there. And that was CU Boulder. And CU Boulder is an excellent university as far as facilities are concerned. But if you're talking about the campus, like it's as big as, you know, Crested Butte. Yeah. So a lot of the equipment that we have, yeah. they have on their campus, but you may have to walk a mile gotcha. across campus to get to. Whereas one of the things we're specializing in here is that everything is under one roof. Yeah. So you could design it in one room, walk over and prototype it 
and, you know, 3D printing or vacuum thermal forming and then bring it over to the machine shop and put the final touches on it. So that really is conducive for students to be able to complete projects. Um, and then I went to School of Mines for my grad work. And then I also taught there for four years and helped develop their hands-on projects. Gotcha. So School of Mines and then bringing us up to the present. It's kind of a convoluted path. Yeah. So I start... I started out in environmental engineering. So my background was large scale remediation systems. So I'd go, you know, uh, anywhere from Alaska to California to uh, beautiful places like Newark, New Jersey. And so there'd be a, a contaminated site. Our company would get hired and say, hey, we need to figure out what we have, you know, what we're dealing with and how do we clean this up. So for about eight years, I designed and implemented large scale remediation systems. And then that was a lot of fun. Initially, I got to go fly up to Alaska every summer and do all of these jobs. But as I started getting better and better at it, I found I was just doing more meetings with lawyers, pitching the next you know, project, talking uh, with the EPA and finalizing things. I wasn't doing as much of what I wanted to do, which was design and implement these large systems. I mean, I got into engineering because I'd love to solve problems, build things. So like too many uh, dudes in their 30s, I probably watched uh, one too many Discovery Channel shows. And so I started building custom motorcycles in my garage, hand pounding tanks, building them up uh, from the engine up and started entering into competitions and, you know, did pretty good. Got second place in the Denver bike build off hmm. and uh, thought, hey, this is a good idea. At least I think it's a good idea. So why don't I start a company? Well, didn't take any business classes and under, you know, when you're doing engineering, you don't learn all the things that are actually critical to starting a successful business. So I uh, quickly realized that Boulder, Colorado, which is where I lived, was not a place to be making and manufacturing $60,000 motorcycles with one seat. Huh. So at that time, uh, I had partnered up with a buddy who was a mechanical engineer from CU and a machinist by trade. And we started working together and said, hey, how do we actually start a business that's viable uh, in this area? So we knew we wanted to do custom design and fabrication. That's what we both loved. So we started taking some night classes, figured out how to do a market study and all of that. And that's when we started Coalesce Design and Fabrication, which was a custom one-off prototyping design and fabrication company. So did that for... 12 years. Wow. 12 years. Yeah. Just wait, coalesce and you were just building custom motorcycles? Yeah. I didn't know that was for 12 years. So the motorcycles thankfully weren't that long. That was a, a, gotcha. a, okay. a different named okay. company that my mom still teases me uh, for, but I still have a couple t-shirts that will stay in the vault. But uh, yeah, so that company building motorcycles, which was Metal Mental Choppers. Metal <laughs> Mental, yeah. Yeah, had a good, cool logo, yeah. but that's about it. Uh -huh. uh, that was only about two years. Gotcha. And quickly realized that if I wanted this to actually be a profession rather than a hobby, I needed to you know, get back into figuring out what the market would support. So, okay. So then two years of trying to build motorcycles with a company with a great logo, <laughs> what then is the pivot? What did you then do for the next decade at Coalesce? Um, 
custom fab. So like one day we could have an artist come to us and say, I have this idea and it's a 30 foot sculpture with lasers and they need to shoot into these receivers. And when you break the, the laser, it makes a musical note and it's going to hang in the Minnesota airport. Be like, cool. We can build that. And so was this a hypothetical example you just named or was this an th actual example? This is in the Minnesota airport. So uh, it's something with uh, lights and lasers and more rings than I can name. And we'd done a lot of public artwork for this artist who was huh. out of Boulder. And a lot of them were uh, lasers and lights since they were all meant to be interactive. Huh. Yeah. And so we could be building that one day and then we could have a, a company come to us and say, I have an idea for a prototype. Could you guys knock that out? Or we could be building a you know, 30 foot floating staircase the next month. So we prided ourselves in being able to build what other uh, fabrication shops couldn't. And that's where kind of like our engineering backgrounds would come in because we could draw it up in SolidWorks, do all the modeling, the analysis of it, and then uh, actually fabricate it and install it. Okay, let's back it up. <laughs> Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Michigan, uh, kind of a rural part of Michigan outside of Kalamazoo. And yeah, I went to high school in Kalamazoo and had your traditional Midwest kind of background of playing ball sports and doing that sort of thing. And then went to undergrad in Ohio. And that's actually where I got into climbing because Dayton, Ohio is pretty close to Red River Gorge yeah. and New River Gorge. And I joined the outdoor uh, you know, club that was at UD. And we started going to New River, Red River, just like rafting, climbing. And so that's actually why I picked the School of Mines because I only applied to grad schools where you could see climbing from campus. And so I got to... Uh, tour the campus at Mines, talked to some of the professors there, really liked it. And sure enough, you can see uh, sport climbing from campus. So. so this is funny. I didn't know this part of your story. So climbing and rafting were kind of your first outdoor sports? Mostly just climbing. Mostly like, just climbing. Rafting was secondary because yeah. uh, it was hard to have the gear and yeah. store the gear and all of that. But all I wanted to do was climb. Just trad climb, big walls, anything uh, my friends and I could get our hands on. So we would, uh, when I moved to Colorado, it just started going out to Utah, doing splitter cracks. We took trips out to Yosemite, tried to knock out some of the big walls there. Zion was another place that we'd go, um, some up in Washington and just tried to do as much trad climbing as I could do. Yeah. So backing up once again for a sec when you know when when we were talking with our friend and colleague Sean Humbert about his background and yeah. you guys can this was our last kind of blister labs gear 30 episode we did Sean was telling the story about how his grandfather right was super instrumental to kind of get him into engineering how Whoa. did you start down the engineering road? I mean, after his story yeah. of his grandpa landing on the beach, right. and, you know, <laughs> swooping up his grandma, like right. I don't, I, I really can't nothing. touch that no, one. None so of us, none of us can. <laughs> um, I got in. I really liked working with my hands, probably through my dad. Um, you know, back in the day when something broke, you didn't just buy a new one. So, I mean, anything from the pump for the sprinkler to the lawnmower it broke, well, what'd you do? You just started fixing it and figured it out. So I, I got into that and really liked it. 
Um, I got into the environmental engineering because I thought it would be an opportunity to stay outside. Yeah. Uh, I liked the idea of designing these large scale remediation systems and all of that. Um, the climbing thing was really parallel with just where I selected schools. Like I wasn't going to apply to a school in Kansas, for example, not because their program wasn't yeah. excellent. It's just that uh, at that point, climbing was important enough to me that I knew I wanted to be in an area where I could do both. Okay. And then my grad advisor was instrumental in just taking me from, I think really being like a, a undergraduate slacker. I came at to school minds, not really knowing what I was getting into. Yeah. And I still remember the moment where she looked at my transcripts and looked at me and was like, so you're what we call deficient. And she, just to set the stage, she's literally like the top in her field, the most intimidating woman I've ever met. Also the kindest, uh, but you know, in her world, like she is a force. I mean, absolutely. Like I have her textbooks, right? Like that's yeah. so. Um, I was I was a little put back by that. And she's like, okay, so uh, in order to get all of your engineering credits, because I didn't have an engineering undergrad, I didn't get my engineering degree until grad school. She's like, you need to take all these classes. I was like, oh, didn't think about that before I came here. So uh, she really kind of guided me through that and inspired me to just like continue to push on huh. because grad school is a little tougher than I expected. Huh. <laughs> Got it. Okay. I didn't know some of that backstory, so that's helpful. So you're out at School of Mines. You're trying to get into this whole engineering world and to be less deficient. <laughs> um, is this then – because I, I know you most or think of you most as a mountain biker. Yeah. Is it when you then got out to mines that you started pedaling? No, I didn't start pedaling till later. Um, I – Moved into, so the company that I was working with was in Boulder and I was living in Denver with a group of friends and we were splitting up. One was moving out of state. Another one was going a different direction on where they wanted to live. And so I was like a week before my, you know, lease was up and I needed to find a place. And one of my buddies ran into, which is now one of my best friends, ran into another friend on the trail and just happened to be like, Hey, yeah, I got a, a buddy that needs a place. And he's like, Oh, we have an extra room. Swing them on by. So I moved into this house and none of them climbed. And so I was like, Hey guys, let's go out and, you know, do some cracks. They're like, mm, how about we ride some bikes? So I started riding a hand-me-down bike and just loved it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I rode some bikes in college and stuff, but nothing, nothing, you know, nothing you know, that exceptional. And yeah. so started riding with them. And that was also about the time full suspension started coming out. I mean, they were a lot different yeah. back then, yeah. but still opened the door for a lot of terrain that you just could not go down with a hardtail. And so, yeah, we just really got into adventuring, going out on as long of the trails as we could, trying to put down as many miles as we could. Uh, and just, you know, you didn't have a, f a cell phone back then with an app that told you where you were. You'd grab those old lat 40 maps and piece it together. So we'd just go out for weekends and just adventure. And it just captured me. I just loved going out there, packing up everything I needed for the day and just trying to put down as many miles as possible. Hmm. What kind of riding do you do now, mostly here in the Gunnison Valley? Are you still kind of the big epic or are you, I mean, you're busy. You yeah. Got a couple kids and you're, you know, married to a woman named Jenny Blacklock. I forgot. We also, Jenny and I definitely talked quite a bit about you and like 
her meeting of you. Uh oh. So we'll uh we'll put a link to the episode with Dr. Jenny Blacklock, your lovely wife. Yep. So people can hear that story, which is kind of hilarious, especially the way Jenny tells it. But so when you are riding around the valley now, are you kind of out trying to do the big epic thing like you were doing back in the day? Or are you on the like punchier, let's try to snap something off in two hours? It just depends on the time I have. Uh, I would say the majority of the rides I get to do now are shorter. Yeah. So two to three hour rides. But you know, for Jenny's 40th, we went out and did 45 miles and were able to do like 5,000 vert. And that was awesome. Yeah. Um, so if I can get, the time to do those bigger rides, I mean, time in the saddle is, I'll take it any chance I can get. Do you consider yourself more of an uphill biker or more of a downhill biker? Um, who am I comparing myself to? Because if it's uh, no anybody in this of, valley, yeah. uh, it's probably neither. Right. That's uh, the right answer for this valley. Yeah. We're just the answer, neither. Uh, I, I've learned to really enjoy the uphill grind. Uh, but obviously, uh, with the bikes we have nowadays and the gear we have nowadays, it's uh, the downhill can just be a moment of pure bliss. Yeah. Uh, you spend more time going uphill, um, so I think you have to really embrace that. But um, you know, the bike I have is a little more downhill oriented, so I'm probably losing a little on the uphill, but it sure is fun on the downhill. What are you riding most of the time currently? Uh, an Ibis Ripmo, the V2. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it climbs great, and but it does love to go downhill. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. So back to climbing for a second. Are you climbing at all these days or have you like completely given that up or do you try to come do the occasional thing? I, I don't know how people sort of just go climb once yeah, like, I, having not climbed. That's it. Of all the sports I've ever participated in, climbing for sure is the one for me that like, if you're not doing it like three to four times a week, you need to not bother because you will go backwards so quickly. Yeah. I, I actually agree with that. And that's actually one of the reasons why I stopped climbing is that every time I had a goal yeah. uh, that I would train to not every time, but many times I'd have this goal and I'd be training hard and you'd tweak a tendon or yeah. tear a little something in your wrist. And it's like, you're just, you just lost all that endurance yeah. and it's, Whereas I felt with both biking and skiing, it's like you get a little injuries, you kind of work through them, maybe change up your style a yeah. little. Yeah. So yeah, but between just kind of some reoccurring injuries and then some bigger falls that created bigger injuries, it was like, okay, climbing is probably not for me anymore. Just physically, some of the ailments I had <laughs> did not lend itself to pulling, you know, putting my hands over my head and pulling myself up over and over again. Yeah. You mentioned skiing. Yep. What's your ski life like these days? Are you primarily backcountry, primarily skiing in bounds? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's similar to biking where it's now uh, skiing in bounds is easier. Yeah. Like I can hop on the bus with my kids, drop them off at a lesson, go, you know, rip with some friends for a couple of hours and then pick them up. Um, love doing backcountry also. Um, definitely um, less... Uh, aggressive in the backcountry than in, now that I've gotten older. So I like to do a lot of hippie trees where super chill, mm -hmm. uh, you know, love the time outdoors. So I, once again, have really enjoy learned to enjoy the uphill because you just zone out. 
You're just doing it. You're exactly where you want to be, knowing that you also get this reward at the end of it where you get to go downhill. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I would say I'm a lot more inbounds these days, but have a full backcountry setup that I like to take out. Cool. Any other sort of outdoor sports these days that are in the mix for you? And I, by the way, I've sort of said this before on Gear 30 Podcast. I love the fact that these things kind of can change from time to time. So I, like I, on the 4th, hiked up Gothic mm-hmm. actually for the first time with like two good friends of mine. And it was freaking awesome. Yeah. And I was like, I need, this place is so beautiful. Like I need to like go hiking, which I never do. Yeah. Cause I'm always on a mountain bike or I'm trail running. But like, if I'm on a mountain bike, first of all, if I'm going uphill, I'm tired and dying. And so I'm not exactly like looking around. And on the downhill, you better not be looking around. Yeah. Right. You're you're looking 30 feet in front of your tire and that's that's it. That's where you're locked. But it was so magnificent up there. And I was just like, I need to literally just incorporate more days out where I'm just hiking stuff and getting up on uh on summits but so but anyway so these things evolve and change but anything else you're kind of currently doing i mean i think kids kind of help drive that Hmm. in a lot of ways they slow you down and have you do activities that you may not be doing if you didn't have them so i am hiking more uh paddle boarding more Hmm. like things that are their speed you know they're three and five I don't expect them to go out and rip a technical yeah. trail, even though my five-year-old is <laughs> starting to do some pretty yeah. cool stuff. Uh, but yeah, so those things, I'm completely open to them. I had just a beautiful day uh, paddle boarding the slate hmm. and it was slow and chill. We you know, had a little picnic and all of that. That's not something I would have thought would have been in my repertoire, but now it's like, yeah, that's a great way to spend a day. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some Blister Labs stuff. And yeah. again, I guess we should just put in the show notes of this episode sort of all the Gear 30 conversations we've had about labs so far. Yep. We'll also put a link into that Blister Summit panel session we did about labs. So we're going to assume you have some background on this. Um, and so with that assumption, talk a bit about what you in particular have been working on since we kicked this thing off uh, right around the start of this year, officially, I guess. What have you been up to? So I've had the opportunity to be able to work on a lot of the projects we're doing because some of the first parts of these builds were in a class that I was teaching. So I had the opportunity to be on the ground level of working on kind of the structure for one of the ski testing rigs we're doing and the fabric testing. And then something that I've been really interested in and recently over the summer where we've had an internship program, I've been able to pull off and do a lot with the mountain bike wheels. And so kind of the overall goal that we're looking to do is to create realistic tests that we can implement in the lab. Can we collect data that are valuable metrics for the end user? And then can we corroborate those with field measurements? So we've been building, developing all of the systems that will be utilized in the lab, so controlled settings, um, and then developing, you know, parallels to those same tests, but then being able to implement those in the field. And the nice thing is that a lot of the the measurement equipment and what we are setting up can be done inside and can be done outside. 
say more about that? Because that's really important, right? Yeah. So a lot of the te- so you're trying to test movement on a spinning object. It's not the spinning you're actually trying to measure. You're trying to measure you know, movement both laterally, radially. You know, how is this reacting to the trail? And so what we came at is a motion capture system so that we can create marker sets that go all over these wheels and they're tracked real time. So a thousand times a second, we're capturing data of these marker sets in X, Y, and Z. So we can filter out the spinning and we can group things to say, hey, I just want to learn like the radial twist that this is doing or the lateral compaction as we land or come out of a G out or something like that. And so we can take that measured in the laboratory. So when we're striking it with weights, whether that be you know on or off camber, um, if we're putting them in statically loaded systems, we can take that data and have it paralleled in the field where we create obstacles, you know, closed course, like, could we create a large drop that is similar in forces to what we are implementing in the lab? Because ideally, if we can show the parallels between what we have in the field, so real riding conditions to what we're doing in the lab, well, that gives merit to what we're testing in the lab. Because obviously, you can crank out a lot of data, just pushing and pulling and twisting wheels. But does that relate to performance yep. because ultimately that's what a reader wants t- to learn is how does this perform under varying conditions because I want to select the wheel that's best for me. Yep. Right? There's amazing wheel sets out there. May- I mean, the gear we have now is, is phenomenal. Like the choices we have and you can get down to just the, the fine minutia of what you want. So how do you figure out for your rider type, size, uh, bike, setup, terrain? How do you figure out what's best for you? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's so funny when we're in conversations about Blister Lab stuff and we go from a conversation where we're talking about ski stuff that we're working mm-hmm. on or some of the the equipment that our team of reviewers is doing. Then you jump over to bike stuff. And I'm just like, my God, everything just got so much more expensive, <laughs> right? And wheel sets, there is such a massive range in terms of price mm-hmm. of these things. And, and I think I'm just still really excited about this idea that we might be able to just help people understand, here's what you're really getting. Mm-hmm. If you're bumping up to a several thousand dollar wheel set, and here is what you're getting if you're spending quite a bit less than that. And, you know, again, the answer isn't so much for me, like, well, how much am I losing out by not going to that more expensive or most expensive thing? Sure. It's just this whole, we talk a lot about this, like know thyself thing. Mm -hmm. We all have a chance to just think about our priorities and what we're really looking for and what kind of ride qualities we might want in a wheel, or we're working with budgets. And maybe I know a lot of incredible riders that have quite a budget. Mm -hmm. So they need to think about like, well, price point in relation to ride qualities, And I think that we've got a shot here. What we're aiming for is to help people better understand what they're getting, say, at a given price point with certain ride characteristics that they're really looking for. Yeah. It's not a, this is the wheel. This is the best. Like this, you know, you, 
everybody needs to buy this next yeah. one or don't buy this yeah. one. There's characteristics, there's pluses and, and minuses. You know, it's, it's a series of metrics, right? What do you want performance wise for your wheel? And then in that set of category, like what are the prices and what do you want to spend? Because I think a lot of people are willing to uh, be open to different budgets if it's meeting certain needs. Yeah. Cause the worst thing, right, is that you do your research, you think you're getting one thing, and then all of a sudden you take it out on trail and it's not performing anywhere near what you thought. Yep. And so ideally that is not happening. If somebody is excited about a product, they do their research, they figure it out, they they you know, they save their pennies and they buy it. Well, we want it to work for them. Yep. So what information can we give the end consumer so that they can say, yeah, this is the wheel set for me. Yeah. And it just comes back, like thinking about a number of other gear review outlets where there has been a tendency to be like gear of the year. And this is the one thing, or it's on the cover. And we have never bought into that at blister because it totally depends on who you are, Mm -hmm. how you ride, where you ride, et cetera. And so I still just love this kind of development with, you know, some things that, um, we might be able to do in terms of just provide more information, uh, to the end user to help him or her figure out what, what will this gear do? And am I looking for that? Do I even care about that? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how we all came to the decision to kind of focus on wheel sets first, right? Mountain bikes have a lot of components and there's a lot of things we could have done. Let's maybe just share with people why we are kind of going with wheel sets to begin. Well, they're one of the most upgraded components you have out there. And it is a a pretty big commitment. If you're looking at a stock pair of rims that you're going to put on uh, a bike and you're going to upgrade, you sky's the limit on what you could buy. And they're uh, one of the central parts of you know how your bike performs. So between those two, I think we have a lot of bang for your buck, a lot of interested readers in it. Um, from a engineering standpoint, uh, I think it's a pretty good challenge because there are tests out there for wheels. Um, you know, the tests were really developed for road biking from a safety standpoint, right? The UCI drop test was to make sure that road bike wheels were up to specs because you can make them lighter and lighter and lighter and stiffer. But what happens when you hit uh, a rock going 45 miles per hour? So that set of testing, which has been around for a long, long time, is all about safety. Well, what tests are out there that are standardized that could help somebody learn about performance? And there's a lot of really cool buzzwords out there that people are putting out to say how their wheels are performing, right? Are, you know, these wheels are radial compliant. Um, these wheels are very poppy. These, um, you, know, you know, take a lot of the force out of the, the, the feel out of the trail. Mm-hmm. Like, and so I think a lot of people coming into this are interested in like, well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And from an engineering standpoint, that's a pretty exciting question to answer is like, well, can we design uh, tests that specifically measure these and then quantify that and then ultimately relate that back to a spectrum of riders because one wheel could be radio compliant for one individual on a certain bike 
and a certain writing style. And you take everything the same, but just change the writer. And it's completely different. It's no longer, it no longer feels radially compliant. That doesn't mean that the first person that said, hey, yeah, this was really, you know, compliant in the turns, that their take on it wasn't great. Yeah. It's just that was their take on it. So in some ways, it's like, well, how much can we take the rider out and break it down to a series of forces in, movement out, and then quantify that back to rider weights, rider styles, right? Um, I keep going back in my head to like these tire charts that you always see. Mm -hmm. And I love them because it's like, hey, this tire is great for hard pack, fast mm -hmm. rolling. This tire is going to be for much more loose, right? If you take those tires and swap the riding conditions, the tire is doing exactly what the tire is meant to do, yep. but it's not going to perform well in that other riding condition. Doesn't mean it's not a great tire. It's just mean you're, it's not being applied into the area it's going to excel. Mm -hmm. So can we start to parse out this information um, because there's a lot of tests we can do and that's what we're developing right now. Yeah. And I still, I guess I'm patting ourselves on the back, <laughs> but I still love this dynamic too, where we have been saying this from day one and it is an integral part of what we're doing. The fact that we will be having this back and forth with our reviewers, right? This just constant dialectic back and forth with, and again, We've already said this isn't just going to be testing taking place in a lab. We've talked about doing using the capture motion system and getting out on real trails mm -hmm. to, you know, have these dynamic this dynamic testing and dynamic modeling. So one, we're already not just in a laboratory. Yeah. But that two that we can then check in with several of our reviewers who are just out there riding and seeing if they're like, yeah, we very much are in agreement with kind of these findings or if they're like, not at all. And then that will give us a chance to kind of internally go back and be like, why are we getting big disagreement between some of our reviewers, whether they're skiers or mountain bikers or whatever. And again, I keep saying I'm really excited actually for some of those conversations where maybe we're getting very, very big points of disagreement. Yeah. And then we try to work through that. Well, yeah. Um, some of the best experiments that you design have more questions than answers at the end of it. Yeah. And that's exciting because that gives you the next iteration of that test. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty rare that you prototype something and get your final product go one. Yeah. Right. So it's important to have that back and forth dialogue of saying, hey, this is what we were able to measure this either agrees or disagrees with your interpretation of it. And it could be, oh, we just need to make a small tweak on this because we thought we were measuring this, but actually we were measuring several things. We need to isolate uh, a certain property uh, of this system. So it gives us that ability to continually iterate these designs because I, I don't think we design and implement a testing strategy and, hey, it's done. Right. And it doesn't change. I mean, ideally... Uh, you continue to learn and you feed back the information that you have and you continue to improve just like skiers and bikers and all of these, you know, their, their products they're improving. Well, the test equipment that is trying to glean some of this important performance information out of it, well, that should be evolving and improving right along with that other product. Yeah. Let's share a bit with folks, where are we kind of today? 
yeah. uh, in terms of all this stuff we've been talking about. Yeah. So the in-lab tests that we've developed, we wanted to parallel some of the things that have already been out there. So we started with the UCI drop yeah. system. So we're going to do the standard UCI drop test with increasing forces. You see that in advertisements from wheels yeah. and all of that. Uh, we're not going the destructive route. So our goal is not to say this wheel's ultimate strength is this. Instead, we want to say uh, these are the harmonic properties we see from it. This is you know, the maximum minimum deflection, the time it takes to return. And all of that's based around the standard UCI, the, the, the rubber that they use, the initial forces that they put in, and then we'll do increasing from there. Um, but on top of that, we're saying, okay, well, uh, every now and then you're going to strike a rock on dead on, but yep. most of the time you're hitting things right. off camber and all right. of that. So we're then doing a series of drops that are off camber and measuring how those wheels respond to that. Um, another thing that we're looking into is radial compliance, mm -hmm. is grabbing onto the rims by their beads and putting twist into it, right? So if you're talking about going into a corner and putting a lot of force and gripping onto it, if your wheel is not rolling uh, with the trail, you're not going to have the same grip pattern uh, for your tire. And so um, we've designed a system that can grab onto the wheel through the beads and then we can apply lateral forces to it. So a little bit of a change up from probably the lateral stiffness values you've seen out there where you have a single hook on a bead or uh, oftentimes they'll throw a strap around it and test both sides. And then also we're doing those in, stat in a static system. So those are in-lab tests where we're doing striking, so dynamic, uh, measuring the vibrations and all of that, but then also doing static loading and just seeing, you know, this is the force in, this is the deflection out mm -hmm. so that we have a lot of data to work with. Uh, from there, we're trying to corroborate that information in the field. Yep. So uh, building a large drop, so that would be similar to like a UCI drop system. You know, and ideally we're not going to get, uh, we're not getting the exact same data, right? But if we see similar forces in, we should see a subdued replica of what we're seeing in uh, the laboratory tests. So for um, something like a drop test, we're going to be doing, you know, a large rock drop. Uh, for something like a radial compliance test, we're going to be going into a nice big bank turn and just trying to lay that bike on the side and see if we're seeing kind of the same subdued once again uh on values that we would see in the field so like that rim uh turning uh, with the system and then uh for like off camber systems uh, just have a rock garden that we've built and we're just gonna try to ping uh, a wheel right through that thing so yep. not picking the best line potentially the worst line and just going through and then seeing like, how does that compare to when we're striking off camber at 20 degrees, 10 degrees, how is that comparing to the values we're seeing in the field? And, you know, if everything works out perfect, then we're seeing that yes, indeed, what we're measuring in the lab is represented with what we're seeing in the field because field tests are, you know, they're challenging. They take a lot of time and all of that. So if we're trying to test, you know, 15 different wheels and get you know a nice chart of their properties you can't do every single one of those instrumented in the field but you can knock those out in the laboratory knowing that what we're doing in the lab uh, does have merit for the performance of it actually in the on the trail yeah i can't wait for the rock garden tests <laughs> because i feel like if i have a superpower in life it is 
always picking the wrong lines on the way up and on the way down. <laughs> it's maybe the thing I do better than anything else. Like, you know, I think there's a cameo for you, uh, coming up here in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm, I'm your guy when it, when it comes to that, I'm glad that this will finally go to like a good purpose yeah. that might serve the world rather than just making mountain biking harder than it should be. It's kind me. of you to, to, right. to give yourself up like that. <laughs> right. Well, this is cool, man. Thank I'm you. first of all, fun to get to sit. I was telling you, I, don't tell anybody or we shouldn't, I guess we'll tell a few people, but like it feels one. like a lot of our conversations, we're always around other people. So I'm glad that you and I finally get a moment. It's just, just us. And I was nervous to get in a room with you, but I've, <laughs> I've laid a lot at the side. So we're, we're good. We're good. Um, and we had a much longer initial conversation prior to this conversation than we probably should have, but it was a really good one. So I appreciate mm -hmm. that. Yep. And I appreciate you, you know, coming on air here to talk about some of the stuff that, you know, we've been been talking about and been working on and, and have you kind of update all of us with where we're at. Um, but, but this is good stuff. And I'll just say it one more time. I'm not going to stop saying it. One of the things that I am still so proud of is to be working with really good engineers who absolutely still share kind of my commitment to trying to produce real world applicable results because i often think that isn't always the case and i love that like there has been no trying to convince you or sean or jenny or lauren or some of the other folks uh about this mm -hmm. and i i think this is going to lead to really useful information to mountain bikers all around the world yeah, I mean, I have a selfish goal yeah, of figuring right. out how these components are doing because I'm an individual that will save up and, you know, I like nice bikes yeah. and nice components and I want to select the correct one for my riding style and what I'm doing. I don't want to just buy one because it looks nice yeah. or, or whatever. So, you know, selfishly, I'm excited to start putting these wheels through the paces and yeah. just seeing you know, how they come out because there are so many good wheel sets out there, yeah. but it's like, well, which one is right for you? Yeah. Well, excellent, man. Yeah. Um, hey, you did great Thanks. for functioning on very little sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Thank um, you. Coffee. Coffee. Here's to coffee. Yeah. Um, I know. What would we do without it? Well, great. It's going to be an exciting next several weeks yeah. and uh, look forward to bringing you back on Gear 30 to give further updates. And Yeah. Excited to actually start talking about some of the results. And yeah. Uh, getting putting some of those out there and just seeing how they're received and running through some rock gardens together yeah absolutely okay thanks greg thank you yeah i'll talk to you soon all right sweet all right it is now time for our weekly what we're celebrating segment uh let's see it is 522 on thursday july 7th i am about to go get a workout in and so later tonight, I will be raising a glass. I don't weirdly tend to drink whiskey before I go work out. Maybe you're different. But later tonight, let's see, I will probably have, I think I'm actually going to go Whistle Pig Piggyback, their six-year-old rye, and I'm probably going to make myself an old-fashioned. I think that's what I'm going to do later tonight. And what I'm going to be raising my glass to is actually a bit of a follow-up. For those of you who listened to our Blister podcast this past Monday, 
Cody Townsend and I did another one of our reviewing the news episodes and Cody kicked off for what is now, I guess, a new monthly feature of ours, the most Canadian news story of the month. And for those of you who listen to it, you'll know that we talked about (laughs) a beaver that knocked out all the power in Northern British Columbia. And I was so happy I got this comment in from Aaron Sketchley, and Aaron wrote in to say, um, quote, it put a smile on my face when you guys mentioned the beaver. I live in Smithers, northern BC, and that guy was regarded as a hero since it happened on the sunniest day all week, and so we all got to leave work early and go bike. Uh, So, first of all, Aaron, I am so grateful that you gave us kind of a follow-up on that story. And man, I just think I like this idea that we've got this local hero that let everybody get out of work on a sunny day and go ride bikes. And that is why I will be raising my glass tonight to the hero of Smithers, BC, the little beaver. And that then brings us to the end of this edition of Gear 30. I want to say thanks to Greg for the conversation and for all of the conversations, actually, that Greg and I have had for more than a year now. I want to say thanks, of course, to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from the entire team here at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will be talking to you real soon. Bye, everybody.